Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not so big questions from the people qualified to give them with your host, Orion Kelly. Hi, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. Really at the core of this podcast is a desire to feed our minds endless hunger to understand things on a deeper level, to know more and to ask why. I've worked in media for over 20 years and have spent a lifetime asking questions, sometimes confronting and most of the time too many questions. I'm excited to go on this journey with you as we seek answers to life's big and not so big but just as important questions. My hope is this will serve you with education and growth opportunities from the questions we ask and the journey we go on. In this episode, we explore the question, why don't we talk about miscarriage? In my personal and recent experience, I found the topic of miscarriage to be taboo and rarely spoken about. Yet it is the Me Too conversations that make the healing and understanding so much better. My guest has not only experienced multiple miscarriages, one of which almost killed her, but she's also my wife. Renee, thanks for joining me and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Extremely convenient. (laughs) (laughs) So the story you're about to share, I mean, from my point of view, it's a truly incredible story and it was clearly life-changing for both of us. Definitely. Um, It's a story that saw you at death's door with little chance of survival. But before we get to that, let's Mm. talk more broadly about our topic of miscarriage. So just from a general point of view, What is miscarriage? So miscarriage is essentially someone losing a pregnancy, whether that's early in the gestation, so once they've just conceived or whether it's later down the track, weeks down the track at any stage of their pregnancy before the baby's born. All right, so we've we've had two miscarriages, I guess that's how you put it. We've lost two pregnancies under like a 12-month period. I don't know if people in general have this problem, but I always feel funny when I say we've been pregnant we've lost pregnancies or we've lost babies because I know that some people say well no I have I didn't lose anything it was just you did you agree with that or do you think the two people that created the pregnancy have them and lost them together definitely I think it's complete rubbish to say that the partner isn't anything to do with the loss because you still have that excitement when you have the, the first pregnancy test that you're pregnant and you kind of plan the life of the child before you've actually even got to that stage so yeah. I think the loss is real for both of you so it definitely should be we not just the woman that's involved yeah and our first miscarriage it resulted from a, a relatively strange pregnancy mm. um, in in kind of time frame and everything. So can you tell us a bit about that story? Just explain to us the, the one that didn't kill you, almost kill you. Tell us a bit about that whole pregnancy experience. I think it's not uncommon what we went through in that sometimes you don't have an early pregnancy test once you've missed your first period that's positive and then you have some bleeding around four weeks so you think that that's your period coming and then you don't think you're pregnant and that's really what happened to us is that that four-week period came Mm. and I was like, oh, I'm not pregnant so um, we'll just keep trying to get pregnant and then the second um, period didn't come and as a result that's when we repeated the pregnancy test but by that stage we were already nearly eight weeks pregnant so it was all very confusing to be honest and what what we thought we were then changed on a scan or, or that's right so we went and had a dating scan to see exactly how far along we were and I think we were nine weeks or something along those lines and we thought we were six or seven or exactly okay yeah so and that's not an uncommon experience to have definitely not okay of course 
it is it is in reality because no one bloody talks about it. That's right, exactly. Because people don't talk about people don't talk about periods, menstruation, and those type of women's health issues to start with. So they're not going to start talking about them when they're trying to get pregnant, are they? Okay, so that's the kind of the starting point. We 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 kind of fell into this realization that we were pregnant, which was amazing. Absolutely. Um, And we had the we had a scan, and that said, no, no, you are pregnant, but it's nine weeks, not six or seven. That's right. So then we have to come back the next week. Is that correct? We were booked in an appointment for the next week to do a kind of a broader general general test. Yeah, so we were due to have the 10-week scan, which is usually where they do combined screening for Down syndrome, and we'd opted to have the newer blood test at that stage. And that's when we went and had, had to have another ultrasound to check that everything was still okay before we had the blood test done. And that's when we found out that yeah. obviously the baby had, had died. Aside from the kind of genetic testing, the whole point was um, before we – charge you how much money is it i think three or four hundred dollars before we charge you three or four hundred dollars for a genetic test let's just check that the baby's actually alive that's effectively the reason isn't yeah, it yeah they say viability scan which is just trying to make it feel less human i feel anyway it makes no sense yeah. so we, we want to check your baby's dead or alive yeah. before we do a test that's a, that's an entirely the fact exactly. and, I, and for us we weren't even prepared for something like that for us with our first pregnancy it just happened and mm. I, I think a lot of people have this kind of ignorance this kind of bliss when they have a first pregnancy that we're so excited then it just happens it just happens in Definitely. fact it's actually one of the hardest things on the planet well you don't to get create. pregnant thinking that the baby's going to die that's no. not what you set out to achieve so i think that no one is prepared for it until they've had a miscarriage and then they realize that there's nothing should be taken for granted every day yeah. is just another day so we found out effectively that we'd um we'd lost a pregnancy by getting a routine um scan to check the viability of the baby to get a test and that's when we found out and, and that particular miscarriage in in a way was um more shocking um than than the next one because we weren't expect we weren't ready for it. We weren't expecting. Well, it. and also because the scan was like four days prior, so yeah. in those four days the baby had died. So we'd gone from seeing a live baby that we were planning a future for to four days later a d- dead baby. Yeah. And so why would you be thinking about that? And it was a really it was a really horrible time because I, and now again correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not the end of the story with this pregnancy. So you find out that um, I'm sorry, the baby's. We they say things like we can't find a heartbeat or whatever. So the baby has died. But don't forget, remember that I realised the baby was dead before the person in the room ultrasounding us said that and said, "Is the baby dead?" And she's like, "Oh, just check a little bit further." Yeah, and that's because you, with a medical background, you what you were looking at the. I was looking for a heartbeat straight away. Of screen. course, yeah, yeah. But that's not the end of the story because clearly, once that happens, that's obviously for us it was shocking. It was, it was an extremely definitely. emotionally sad, shocking situation. We already we already kind of realised through going through it that you just no one really talks about this in general terms. So it's actually way worse than it probably could be if more people talked about it. Definitely, and it's, it's not until you go through it that you realise people say put their hand up and they've experienced too. But definitely. what what would help to people talking about it is the things that follow. Like for example, from my point of view, I don't know what happens once once that that happened. We found out we'd lost a pregnancy mm. in ten weeks. I didn't know what would happen. Um, and the long story short is, and you can explain it, but the long story short is, in effect, you know that that beautiful little baby's got to come out. Yeah, exactly. It, it ain't staying in there. Mm. And from your point of view, you had effectively a procedure. Is that right? That's right. So. 
in some people, the body just essentially makes you lose the baby and shed it like you're just having a normal period, just yep. a bit heavier. But that didn't happen in my case. And then our obstetrician essentially said, well, the baby's quite big. So I think there'll be quite a lot of blood loss. So we'll, let's do a procedure instead where you're under anesthetic and you essentially scrape out the uterus of the baby and the, the products relating to the baby and start afresh. With regards to that, our first pregnancy, our first miscarriage, sorry, that whole experience, how did that affect you? Oh, gosh. I think on so many different levels, for for one, obviously, it was very sad because we had this expectation. As soon as you, you pee on the stick, so to speak, and you realise that you could be pregnant, I think you already have have planned um, quite a life for that yeah. child. And as a result, any kind of hiccup along the way alters that projection that you'd made. But then also I think around that kind of time is when you would start telling people that you're pregnant and now you you haven't told them that you're pregnant. So then you feel like you can't share that you've just lost a pregnancy because no one knew you were pregnant in the first place. Yeah. So instead of saying to your family or your community of friends that – Hey, we're pregnant as soon as you find out you're pregnant at four weeks. And then when you lose the baby, you have this community of support around you. You're faced with, well, I haven't told anyone that we're pregnant in the first place. And now I'm just going to tell them that we've lost a baby. That's kind of a really strange situation to be put into. Yeah. And so it doesn't really come naturally and organically. It, you kind of say to these people that are close to you, well, we've just lost a baby. And then they've got to deal with that and then try to support you in some way. But I guess part of me didn't even want to tell anyone because no one knew in the first place. So it's like it never even existed. But I don't think that's the way it should be because we should acknowledge that it existed because it is a real loss. So if we don't acknowledge it happened, then did it actually ever happen in the world? That's one of the big questions. I mean, from my point of view, so for starters, a big question is why does no one talk about miscarriage? In our instance, if it was more, it was talked about more broadly and more openly, um, all these experiences, we kind of probably would have known more about these experiences and it would have helped us. But putting that aside, there's a broader question. Has the medical world become so safe that there's there's this acceptance that once you pee on a stick at three, four weeks and that stick says you're, th- you're three to four weeks pregnant, why not trumpet that to the whole world, even if that means the pregnancy, like, like a lot do, doesn't work out? Why not trumpet it to the whole world? The whole world go, good on you, congratulations from the start. And then if something goes bad, the whole world, mm. go, the whole world embraces you. That's like an, that seems like an, an ideal situation, but it's not really what happens, is it? I mean, it's... You kind of, people tell you wait till 12 weeks or wait till 20 weeks or whatever. And I don't know from what you've said, it always seems like you think, you know what, forget about what could happen. Mm. Once you know, tell people they're important to you, enjoy that moment with them. And also that means that you'll have them if the moment doesn't last or turn out for the best. And that's certainly kind of been our experience going through it more than once. Definitely. And I, look, I think that's true. But on the other side, I think that we want to protect ourselves from having to share it broadly, that we've yeah. lost something that's so important to us so that if we don't share it in the first place, then we don't have to suffer that loss with so many people and it just remains this internalised struggle instead, which yeah. I don't think is, is good for our mental health at all, but I think it's something that a lot of people choose to do just as a protection mechanism more than anything. Yeah. In April 2018, um, our lives, they certainly changed forever when you went through what was a kind of a genuine 
near-death experience, a, a circling the drain moment, as they say, <laughs> with, uh, with, our, with our second miscarriage. This one is the one that I don't think people will genuinely believe the story and um, we'll certainly, we're certainly going to hear it in, in more detail than m- most people will ever hear a story. I guess starting at the start, can, can you share that experience with us and I guess just kind of tell us what happened. So start at sure. the start. We were lucky enough after, after a miscarriage to, to get pregnant again mm. and kind of talk us through that, that pregnancy and, and the overall experience. So I guess with the second pregnancy, we didn't really rush to have a dating scan really quickly because we'd just been burnt from the first miscarriage yeah. that we had a dating scan and then soon after we saw a d- dead baby. So we certainly didn't rush into it and we knew we were about seven weeks pregnant and I was due to have a, a scan only days after what actually happened happened. So in retrospect, probably if we'd had a dating scan or if we'd done that earlier, that we probably would have known that the pregnancy was ectopic, meaning that it was not in the uterus where it should be but it was in the tube the fallopian tube between the ovary and the uterus which obviously can't sustain a baby it can only stretch to a certain amount before it ruptures which is what happened in my case let's let's just quickly broaden that up from the point of view of where we were so you were about six six and something six weeks pregnant and we did not know because it was so early that um, for those kind of working out what did what did you just say? In effect, the baby comes down the fallopian tube into your how does it so So the egg's released from the ovary of the yep. woman and then the sperm swims up into the uterus yep. and then meets the egg and they combine together. And usually that takes place in the uterus okay. and the the combined egg and sperm together implant into the uterus wall and that's where they grow and everything's happy. But in this case, the sperm met the egg inside the fallopian tube and decided to settle down there. So you blamed me for having... Two, you have two fast yeah, swimmers okay. so and I have issue. slow eggs. Okay. It's a combination of speed and agility. Laziness, yeah. So, so in effect, it was it was a kind of a perfect storm, really. Definitely. So not only did um, the, the, the egg and the sperm meet in the wrong place in the fallopian tube, you've got two of those, right? One That's on, right. One on each side. Yeah. Um, but... It got stuck there. It didn't go any further. Yeah, so that can happen if you've had previous surgery or infection or or other reasons, none of which I'd ever had. So it was even more of a freak thing that had happened. And in in effect, instead of it kind of growing inside you where it should, it was in effect to some degree growing, right? Definitely. So it was... I still had all the normal pregnancy symptoms and the rising of the hormone level that babies make and all of those things. Um, it just would only get to a certain growth amount because there just isn't enough room for it to get. And then, of course, any once bigger. it once it breaches that amount of room, it obviously it becomes bigger than the fallopian tube provides. Yeah, so, yeah. So I'm at the the time I'm at work, and you're at home with our four year old. Yeah. Talk us through that that kind of day leading up. Yeah, to, yeah, definitely. Leading up to how you got to hospital. So I think the other thing to say is that a lot of women get warning signs with bleeding and pain, and which I did not have any of those. I literally was at home with our son Conan because he was sick. And so I'd taken the day off work. You would, you were at work at the moment. 
We were just having a normal day at home. And then I just remember at 9.30 on the dot, I got 10 out of 10 excruciating pain in my abdomen. And you know 10 out of 10 pain is you've given birth. Correct. (laughs) And I would actually say that this pain was worse than labour because it was constant. It wasn't like the contractions of labour that come and go. It was just bang and it was there and it was not changing. It was severe pain. Okay, so you you got the 10 out of 10 pain. You're at home with that four-year-old. I'm at work. You don't really know what's going on. And, you know, what, what kind of happened from there? I know that at one point I know that you called me. Mm. I was at work and you called me yeah. and you were absolutely in tears. It was clearly the worst pain you ever had. You were absolutely in tears. You were beside yourself and you didn't – I don't really remember the conversation more than you said, you know, um, something's really – I'm going to the hospital. Something's really wrong. <laughs> yeah. I've, got, I've got to go to the hospital. I think you – the conversation might have been about you more thinking you were more so um, – losing the baby in a more of a natural way, potentially, then you had no idea, I don't think, what was what was going to happen. So, okay, so you're at t- you're 10 out of 10 pain. You've got a four-year-old. You get yourself to hospital. So um, I'm going to back it up there a bit first. Yeah. So I decided I might go have a shower because I haven't had a shower yet. Goodness so I go have a shower and I think, oh, maybe the warm shower will help with this pain that's maybe just I'm making it up. Maybe I'll go to the toilet as well. Maybe that will make me feel better. Do that. Realised when I couldn't put my shoes on without having to essentially lie on the ground to put my shoes on because I couldn't bend properly that I was probably in more trouble than I thought I was yeah so I got a question yeah go for, for it. it go for it um just a general question because you know you're my wife does our family have ambulance cover yeah they do yeah okay so how <laughs> we so you can you can confirm we have up-to-date active ambulance <laughs> yes, cover yes. so as in you can call triple zero yes. and ambulance will come and get you and take yes. you for free free of charge yeah, yeah. As, a, as based on an all ambulance. right all right all right how, how did you and our four-year-old and you know the the baby inside you. Yeah. How did you get yourself? We're not going to name the hospital, but how did you get yourself to the emergency? We drove. So I look. I'm not going to defend my decision, um, but I am going to give you some explanation of why my brain may have thought that at the time. And that's, it I think is that's a, why I'm asking. Yeah. So look. I decided that the hospital that's near where we live was quite close and that I would probably be able to get there within five minutes. And I thought to myself with my medical rational brain, I've got abdominal pain and that's all I have. If I call triple zero, the ambulance may not be a high category that gets sent to me and I may be waiting 15 to 20 minutes for an ambulance. And at the rate of my pain and where I'm at at the moment, I was worried that that wasn't going to be fast enough. In retrospect, it was probably a really stupid decision. But no but one listening to this knows that yet, really. No. And, and you've got to keep in mind too, a 10 out of 10, a horrific 10 out of 10 pain, the hospital's close, everyone. I don't think many people listening to this would, would disagree that paramedics do an amazing job. Definitely. But, but definitely. In, in the many ways, you know, people have this feeling, well, why would I want to take an ambulance away from someone else when I'm close and I don't feel that bad? Absolutely. So- and look, in retrospect, a lot of people have criticised me for driving a car, but I don't know if anyone in would have done that differently if they were in my situation. But they do definitely judge afterwards once they know what was going on in my body because it was a very big risk. Judgments are relevant though based on, you know, what you're you're the only person feeling it. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so... So on my little drive to the hospital... The pain was excruciating. Um, I remember parking the car in the car park instead of just driving up to the emergency department door, which is probably another stupid decision. I think a lot of people know to find a park at a... (laughs) Tertiary, Tertiary hospital. hospital is never easy. So, And then Conan wouldn't get out of the car. So I remember yeah. being quite um, angry towards him saying, come on, you've got to get out of the car. But 
obviously he didn't know what was going on. And then I remember walking into the hospital. So this is the thing. When, when we walk – we've been to ED – Quite a lot because we have a four-year-old. I think yeah, we have like a gold card or yeah. something. But basically my experience <laughs> Frequent is flyer points. when you walk in, you're greeted with a massive line. Yes. And it could take you between half an hour and an hour just to see the triage nurse, let alone go into it. Absolutely, anything. absolutely. So you That was not in. the case. What happened? So it was like the seas parted when I arrived in the emergency department. I was standing at the back of the line. There was many people in front of me. And then the people around me saw, obviously, I looked terrible. Um, I was crying because my pain was excruciating. Had a four-year-old with you? I had Conan holding my hand. I had his iPad and my handbag in the other side, distractions for him. Um, And I was almost doubling over in pain by that stage. And everyone in front of me said you should go before us yeah. and they just moved out of the way Which and so I was seen very quickly. <laughs> okay, back in the story when you said that you called me and you were crying and saying, can I just say I was driving from, from work to the hospital from that very moment. Of so course. Just, I just happened to be maybe 30 minutes from the hospital so that I was on my way and at that point when I was driving, I didn't take the call but I got a missed call and when I got to the hospital, I had two missed calls and two voicemails from the, you know, the, the ED consultant physician who called me saying you know where you are and to call him to call him yeah, back of course so i knew something wasn't right you know they were calling me saying you're there that was not good no definitely um, you not. obviously got in very quickly so the line parted you got seen um mm. where we, we, when people talk about ed they think about going in you know the fast track rooms here or there talking to people and you know but where did where were you taken So how it happened was I had my observations taken. I had a really fast heart rate, faster than what would be expected. But my blood pressure and everything was okay at that time. So they give you categories. Category one is like critically ill, needs to be seen immediately. Category two within, I think it's about 15 minutes, don't quote me on this. And then it goes down to category five. So I was um, triaged as a category two. Mm -hmm. So I got moved into quite an urgent um, room to be seen. And I was seen within five minutes. And I remember getting undressed out of my clothes into my hospital gown and really struggling to do that to the point where I hadn't even closed the curtain properly because I was just like so out of it with the amount of pain that I was in. And then I remember the emergency doctor coming in um, and speaking to me and then realizing how sick I was and putting an ultrasound probe on my tummy because I was pregnant and having severe pain, so wondering about the worst. And because of my medical background, he said there's a moderate amount of free fluid, which essentially means blood or fluid of a bad kind within the abdomen, which shouldn't be there, yep. which usually means something has ruptured. Okay. And so within minutes, he was on the phone speaking to the operating theatre, calling the blood bank, and I was transferred into the resuscitation bay. When I got there, obviously, you were in a, in a resus bay. They're, yeah. the, they're the bays you don't want to visit in Correct. an ED. yeah. So when I got there, obviously, um, Conan, our four-year-old, was basically mm. sitting on a chair in the corner of a resus bay where there was countless medical staff hovered around you, and you weren't, you know, you weren't close to kind of coherent in a normal way you were just so in pain so struggling it was virtually impossible for you to really interact in any way you were just you looked really bad nor Conan nor I really knew how bad you felt and in effect as we've talked about what effectively happened was the thing growing inside your fallopian tube ended up effectively just rupturing as in breaking through it Mm. and you say that that's not the worst case scenario but another thing on top of that happened when it kind of broke Mm. So often it ruptures and there's a tiny amount of bleeding. So we're talking like little drop by drop. So it's not 
as catastrophic, but in my case, it ruptured through the artery that supplies that that part of the body, mm-hmm. and as a result, I was hosing out blood quite rapidly. In, but inside you, correct. So with no bleeding for me to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from my point of view, being completely non-medical, and I'm sure I'm not the only person you know listening to you talk right now that is non-medical. When you have amounts of blood or large amounts of blood inside you, you know, what's the kind of severity of that with regards to good and bad? And is that a pretty bad thing to have happen to you? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, it causes you a lot of pain because blood is really irritating, but any blood in the abdomen that shouldn't be there is, is bad. So basically the, the miscarriage, the damage done, I was literally in that room with you and Conan for minutes and they wheeled your way. Yeah. Um, and when you're in that room, mm. the resource, you are really agitated and everywhere and clearly in horrific pain. And then we kind of left and went out the normal way and walked down the hallway. I was taking Conan down to a, like a waiting room where he could sit on my lap and watch something on the iPad or something because what, what was I going to do? Mm. And we just happened as we got to a room, we just happened to meet you. You were coming out on a bed. You were coming out of a door going down to, to the operating theatre. And when you came out of that door, when we left you in the resus bay, agitated, crazy, when you came out of that door, you looked sleepy and peaceful. Hmm. Can you explain that? If I asked you simply, you'd go, well, that's because I was dying at that point. But can you kind of explain how we leave you in ED and you're agitated and we, we, we bump into you going to the, the operating theatre and it's like, have they given you anything? I mean, you were sleepy. Yeah, yeah. And- so I'd had a lot of painkillers, but I wasn't drowsy from the painkillers. And by that stage, my blood pressure was very low um, and I'd started to get fluids and all that extra stuff being given to me at that time. But look, I reflect on that a lot afterwards because I actually remember feeling peaceful. I still had a lot of pain, but I remember feeling at peace and almost like I had someone with me, like a spiritual type experience. Do you remember anything about that feeling or that person or was it just an overwhelming... No, I just felt like like safe and warm and... Not afraid. What would you liken that to? Well, my rational medical brain says that I'd had a lot of morphine-based medications yep. and I was close to dying. But my non-medical brain says, well, maybe I was close to dying and that was a spiritual experience where yep. I was close to getting to, to God or whatever you believe in, something higher was with me, yeah. making me feel safe. But the, the fact of the matter is, in hindsight, you were dying. That's a fact. That's true. So, and everyone will, everyone who was part of it will tell you. you, you you've told me stories past um, about, you know, conversations between, between surgeons. You know, one surgeon would walk in a room and go, hey, you come with me right now kind of thing. You didn't know that until months after. Yeah, yeah of but course. But the, the, experience, the experience of the surgery, so you've gone into ED and they've, they've taken you pretty much straight into surgery. Mm. Why did they take you straight into surgery and what did they effectively um, do and what did you go through? And tell us about that experience. Well, essentially, so surgery happened so quickly because they repeated the scan and now there was a large amount of free fluid, so blood within my abdomen. So the bleeding was quite rapid and my blood pressure was quite low. And obviously that's a sign that you're bleeding a lot at that stage and pain was not slowing. All of those things were happening and being known to have a pregnancy and having that severe pain, it's an ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. So they raced me to the to the operating theatre to open me up and to try to stop the bleeding was the first port of call. Yeah. Um, 
I remember being in the operating theatre and having, it would have been 10 people around me, it was a sea of faces and they all introduced themselves to me but I I honestly can't remember that it was just very overwhelming at the yeah. time. And then I remember going into the operating theatre and that cold feeling that the mm. operating theatre has and the one person I remember introducing themselves to me was the um, the porter or the guy that gets all the equipment and he held my hand at that time. Yeah. And so obviously I looked very bad. Um, And I remember the anaesthetist putting the mask on my face and um, actually trying to breathe for me. Like I was still awake enough to know that that was happening. And usually you don't have that awareness. Usually you're asleep by then or you're so severely unwell. But I definitely remember it because I remember that feeling of – oxygen being forced into my mouth and nose even without me being able to stop it from being happening. I'm not sure if this is common or uncommon, but it struck me as quite odd. So um, I got a call from the surgeon. This is clearly after the surgery. And the surgeon said, come and meet me in the surgical area, in the recovery, recovery area. Mm. I'm not in the medical world, but I, that didn't strike me as something that's common. Surgeons, Definitely not. Surgeons don't often ask family members to come to the surgical recovery yeah. area. That was scary. You know, that's, that's the kind of conversation you expect to say we lost her effectively. Yeah, of course. Um, and when I spoke with her, I don't really – I'm sorry, I didn't take anything in. Of course. Um, but Why I, would you? But then I walked straight over to you and they were just putting in so many things into you. And in hindsight, clearly um, you you couldn't have got any closer to death's door and they were – you lost so much blood and, and they were replacing so many things into mm. you and you and you were still not out of the woods. But from, from your point of view, in hindsight, now you've – talk to people about the experience what was the end result how how close were you and how close did they think you were and and you know how how did that whole experience talking about it reliving it how did that kind of affect you and and you know change you so I think um it wasn't until after everything till days down the track that I had a true understanding of just how close I came to dying Um, and that the fact that the surgery itself was quite quick but I needed to stay in the operating theatre for three to four hours later because I was so unstable from a blood loss point of view and needing to have um, so many transfusions of many different blood products. I just remember waking up in recovery and looking up and just seeing a sea of bags of blood and plasma and platelets and all these other things that make up our blood and thinking wow I've um, been really really unwell yeah obviously it's not an experience people really kind of can rationalize or can even kind of get their head around in effect it was a it was an absolutely near-death experience uh, for 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 yourself and for our whole family definitely from your point of view how did the near-death experience that you went through change you and also change your outlook on life. So I think at first it it was more recovering physically than actually dealing with it emotionally. And so it took weeks for me to start feeling anywhere near normal after that to happen. Um, and then I think probably it was only reflecting on it later down the track. And I think initially I just thought my entire world would just change because I'd nearly died and therefore um, everyone should just change how they act and change how life goes because life's so precious and you don't know what's going to happen next. So you should just live in the moment. But that's in reality, that's not what happens. And so I I found that really, I got frustrated by that because people didn't just change because I'd been through something. And I think reflecting on that, that's just my own 
issues myself coming to deal with it more than trying to force change on other people. But as more time went on, it made me think more about about life, about what's important, about um, family, about all of those type of things. And like soon after, we bought a block of land by the beach. And I think a lot of things changed. I started saying no at work to certain extra things that I was being asked to do because it wasn't right for me or my family. And I, I probably started living a bit more day to day. And I definitely started saying what I was grateful for in my mind a lot more than I did previously. Because in the end, we really did go through one day we were a family and the next day we might not have been a family. It Definitely. Was, it was that legitimately serious. And it was, you know, in the space of 12 months, you know, we lost two pregnancies and we almost lost you. So it was a pretty amazing period of time. And I think I think everyone kind of was all on the same page. We thought this really, this really has changed um, how we look at life and our outlook on life. And I, I get what you're saying with it would have been frustrating one why everyone else isn't... Um, completely changing but I think when you look back now I think everyone was changing but in small little steps and in little ways yeah of course and and it just doesn't happen in one big go but I think you know it does affect everyone differently you were legitimately circling the drain as they say I can't relate to that as an experience it's it's an it's a very intimate experience and do you feel that's added things to you that's taken definitely no 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 it's only added definitely so like uh, in my medical practice I definitely Um, treat a lot of situations much differently than I did previously. So, for example, giving blood products to people that maybe not quite really, really need them. So I would think twice about that because I think about, well, those blood products weren't available for me or someone like myself who was dying and I'm giving them to someone who doesn't really, really need them right now. Then that's a bad use of resources. But then I also think it changed a lot to do with how I deal with people in general, in that sometimes we don't understand why people make certain choices in their life, and that's okay. But I think it's more accepting their choices for what they are yeah. instead of trying to change people to be your ideal or to see the world the way you see it because they haven't experienced what I have so I can't yeah. force that upon them. So I use it as a bit of a teaching experience as well for more junior medical staff talking about why one person might choose something over another option. Mm. But not only that, I also use it to say, well, look, don't wait to have babies when it's an ideal time after you've done your specialist training, after you've done X, Y, and Z, do it now because you don't actually know what's going to happen next. And so I say that to these junior staff and I also tell them they should get life insurance early as well (laughs) because you just don't know when (laughs) when you're going to die. Because I certainly didn't prepare to die in my 30s. Um, It wasn't on my list of to-dos. You legitimately were. Oh, absolutely. You were legitimately dying and could have died. And for me and having a four-year-old, it's it's a frightening thing, and and it's it's you, I still don't actually get it. If you know what I mean, it still hasn't really doesn't make any sense to me the whole experience because no one really communicated with me during during your period of, of dying, and then I, I get a call and it's then then it's there she is, you know, like it's kind of it's I don't know it's a, it's a really tricky situation, and I, and I know that you learned a lot the the system learned a lot from it, and definitely I, I know that I know that what what really did help you and and hinder you too was. In that instance, so we, we, you know, we lost a pregnancy at six, seven weeks. You know, so some might some might argue what pregnancy, uh, but if oh my if, god! But but for the pregnancy, you would not have had a ruptured fallopian tube. So it was a bloody pregnancy. But in the end, after both the miscarriages, I, I did notice that you know people close to you and some not so close, they would they would 
they would come up to you, they would offer their stories of miscarriage, they, kind of like those a Me Too moment. Definitely. And you would never pick them for going through that, but they all kind of came out to support you. Did that help you and how, and how did it help you? Well, I think it helped me because for me, talking about things more is my way of dealing with it. So I think if I had not kept on sharing the experience or not provided feedback to the hospital about my patient experience or not done those things, that I would be in a worse situation than I am in now. The other really complicating factor for me is that I had to go back to that same hospital as a workplace and I didn't want to go into there and have post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm not going to lie, I definitely felt something when I walked in the hospital yeah and I still whenever I talk about it have a fast heartbeat but not to the point where it's affecting me psychologically but I definitely it's something that's stuck with me and it's always going to you almost died there so I think talking about it for me is the only way to move forward from this and to learn from this and so having people come forward and say look I've been through this as well and look it's terrible and it doesn't get easier, but time does make things better is really helpful. But I don't think people should sugarcoat it because time doesn't make things better with loss and grief. It just makes it easier. And yeah. I don't think it's better. But you shouldn't hold on to it like it's like it's kind of your right to hold on to something to just be <clears throat> kind of sad or grumpy no, about it. No, mean, definitely not. Yeah. But I think I don't think you should forget about it either no, because even though it the the baby was only six weeks old, I don't think it should be forgotten as something no, that happened in our lives. Absolutely not. Yeah. And were you surprised by the amount of people that came forward with, with the similar stories? Like Definitely. You knew them quite well. Person like lived no with I, them before. No yeah, yeah, definitely. These people had Definitely. Miscarriages. Blew me away. Even family members, so aunts yeah. and un- um, uncles that have had their wives lose pregnancies, things like that came forward and spoke to me about it as well, which I part of me was like, great, thanks for sharing it. My other part was like, why the hell didn't we talk about this earlier? Yeah. But then on the other side of the coin, it also really brought forward a lot of people that – I don't know if whether it's ignorance or it's not having that experience where they'll be like, well, it was it was never meant to be or it wasn't a baby anyway or it was never going to be a baby and all this kind of negative language that is really unhelpful because yeah. it doesn't matter whether they f- say that it's going to be a baby or not. As soon as you pee on that stick, you're pregnant, you're having a baby. That's so right. I don't think – I think you need to talk about it but I think you actually cho- need to choose your words quite wisely because yeah. it can be really hurtful and make the situation much worse if you choose the wrong language. When you're trying to help. Some people Definitely. try to help in a way where they play it down. But from your point of view, what helped you not only was the, the sheer amount of people that had Me Too experiences that Definitely. you never would have picked it, Definitely. but the fact they openly – this is the thing – when it happens and they choose to share it, they openly discuss it and it actually heals them more and heals definitely, you. Definitely. And I don't think you need to go to people that have had a miscarriage and try to fix them. No. I think you need to just go there and be and listen yeah. and share like, wow, this must be terrible for you. Yeah. Not not try to say, oh, well, it was only this or it was only that. It's, you just need to be there. And I think it's like when someone dies, like there's all these or people that are dying, there's all these people that come in and they provide support before the person dies, they provide support at the funeral and then the person dies and then there's everyone gives the family space and it's like, oh, my God, you don't want space in that time. You yeah. want more people around you. You want your community to support you and yeah. you don't want them to go away. No. Why are you getting emotional? I don't know. It's okay to get emotional. 
This is something you, you know, you've actually gone through. The fact of the matter is through going through the miscarriages, you've learned the power of including people, the power of community, the power of friends, the power mm. of support, the power yeah. of not pushing people away. Is, is that fair enough? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's probably the main thing is that, is that knowing that people want you around after the darkest time, yeah. not just yeah. at the darkest time or before or whatever. You need people all the time and it just doesn't go away that people need to continue to support you. So why do you think we don't openly talk about miscarriage? And let me add to that, death or dying. Because miscarriage is, is a death, isn't it? Why, Absolutely. Why, why don't we openly talk about miscarriage? Why don't we openly talk about death or the process of dying? I don't know. And is it helpful? It's really unhelpful. It's so unhelpful because people just implode with emotions if they don't talk about how they're feeling or what's going on around them or, or recognise that this grief is happening to them. So I don't know why as a society that we shy away from it. Maybe, uh, I don't know. I don't understand it. I think it's rubbish. I think we need to recognise the elephant in the room and speak about it and talk about it openly. And the more we talk about it, the less stigmatised it becomes and the more that we grow as a society. So I think we need to talk more about it. And do you think love and being connected and closeness and intimacy um, is increased or decreased by having uncomfortable conversations rather than small talk conversations? Oh, it's definitely increased yeah. if you have deep, meaningful conversations. But no one does. No one does. That, that's, no. that's the whole point of this podcast. I hate small talk. But no, <laughs> I know. But do, you, yeah. but do you see what I mean? Why does no one talk about miscarriages or death or dying? Because they want to talk about, hey, what you, what you do on the weekend? No, what? but that's because they don't do actually give a crap about what you've actually done on the weekend. If the people that actually care about what you did on the weekend probably aren't going to ask you that question because they were either with you or they already know what you were doing because you're connected to them in the first place. Yes, but they'll ask you that question when they could have had a deeper conversation. And this is, this is the whole point. How does it make you feel, you know, when you kind of go through experiences like death, miscarriage, someone dying, and no one really... No one really wants to talk about those experiences. I think it's it's worse because yeah. – and I think a lot of people shy away from it because they go, well, I don't want to upset her. I don't want to make her cry. I don't want to do this. And that's really unhelpful. So what did you find them, when you went through – I mean, we both went through it, but you, you're the one that kind of physically went through it and you, know, you legitimately almost died. What did you find the most therapeutic and helpful? What types of conversations and what types of things were kind of said? The, the, the more intimate, the more deep, the more definitely. confronting? Definitely. The more confronting. Did you you have did you have quite confronting conversations with people about many. your about your life and many what kind of things did you learn so like even it didn't have to be just people that have been in my life for a long time it could have been a patient of mine that yeah. for instance I, because I was away for an extended period of time and then they were upset that they couldn't see me and were getting quite angry with me and then I would say well that's because I've been unwell in hospital hmm. and then the the person would change completely about how they would feel or interact with me at that yeah. time but I think it humanizes people. Really, it definitely it? does. So I think the conversations that actually made me feel something were the conversations that made me grow as a person and yeah. probably have a bit more understanding of what it's like to be unwell, um, vulnerable and mm. at the mercy of the system, so to speak. Yeah. Finally, and you've really kind of led us to this, should we be more open and honest about miscarriage, about death, about dying? Absolutely. There's no question in my mind about that. And why do you think that's the case? What's the benefits of that rather than this kind of secret society? 
Because everyone benefits. People that have lost benefit because they get to talk about their story. People that haven't get to understand what other people are going through and develop empathy and grow as a person. And if we can talk about things more openly, then we're willing to share things when we're in vulnerable states, when we need more support. And it's the little things like people sending you an entire week's groceries or people sending you flowers and calling in just because they want to, not because they have to. Oh, my gosh, our house is like a florist. Yeah, definitely. And that must make you feel so much better than when people don't really feel they're allowed to send. Oh, if I send her flowers, is that because in the end... The worst case scenario is there's a secret society. If your family member dies, you join a society where people will talk to you about their experience of family members dying. Or <laughs> if you have a miscarriage, you've joined the secret society where people who've had miscarriage have talked. Do you understand? That's the reality at the moment. Definitely. You have to join the secret society by going through it. Before I don't recommend this society, but, though. But what, what, we're, what we're discovering, and let me finish with, with this point for you, what do you feel, what's your impression with regards to the best way forward when, when it comes to... You know, just people, whether they've gone through it, haven't gone through it, they're just living, breathing people talking openly about these types of big picture things. I think the biggest thing to learn from this is that we need to live in the moment and that we need to just talk openly about everything. There shouldn't be a taboo subject. There should always just be open conversation because say – for instance, you're going to just drop dead the next day, then what was the point of not talking about things that you've yeah. been concerned about or not supporting that person that you care about? There, there is no point to this life if we don't share it with other people. Yeah. We might as well have just existed and then never left a footprint on the earth and be gone if exactly. we don't share our experiences and, and make connections with other human beings. Absolutely. And what you like to say about fences and tables? <laughs> <laughs> That we, we should build longer tables, not higher fences. Yeah. So we should invite people yeah, no, into our good. lives. I'd like tall hedges just to keep the neighbours out. <laughs> but I see what you're saying. It's a good point. No, I think everything that we've discussed just makes total sense. And you, you, you just don't know this stuff until you go through it. But hopefully it's been enjoyable for you. Absolutely. <laughs> Happy to talk about I'm, it. I'm really, really thankful for uh, you know, your honesty and your openness and your time. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for um, joining me and talking about why people don't talk about these big questions. I really appreciate no it. No worries. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. And I hope in some way it's helped you learn and grow and explore life on a deeper level. I'm excited to continue this conversation with you. So please find me on Facebook and like my page, Orion Kelly. That's Orion, like the constellation. O-R-I-O-N, Kelly, but you knew that. If there's a question or a topic you'd like us to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, please post on the Facebook page, Orion Kelly. Until next time, keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook. Facebook.